This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com and everywhere else that podcasts are found. Our guest today, Jeffrey Martin. He is founder of Transformative Technology Space. He is a serial entrepreneur and a social scientist who researches personal transformation and the highest forms of human well-being. He's done some very interesting work, and we're excited to have him on today. Jeffrey, thank you so very much to take the time to be with us today. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Jeffrey, let's uh, begin, as we always do on this show, um, by asking our guests how they came to the work they do. Um, tell us a bit about your spiritual uh, progression, your, your journey, and what brought you to the research you do. Sure. So I, for me, it all started. I was when I was young, like it does for most people, probably. Uh, I grew up in a relatively conservative Christian family, with uh, uncles that were Bible professors and deans of, bio, you know, Christian education places and stuff like that. My dad was a business guy, though, and so I wound up being all over the world and a little bit more distant from those than the rest of my family. Nonetheless, my mom was quite. Uh, quite a conservative Christian. She actually had her own um, Christian TV show for a while that was syndicated all over the world that focused mm -hmm. on missionaries, uh, the whole bit, right? And so uh, I, you know, like a good Christian, asked Jesus to come into my heart many times when I was a kid and didn't feel like anything ever really happened and more or less exited, I'd say, my teenage years feeling like God clearly didn't want anything to do with me. <laughs> um, and so went through a bunch of... Um, self-help and philosophy and other religions and sort of everything that you could think of, trying to sort of get some sort of grounding under me, never really found anything consistent or useful in most of that either. And so wound up just settling on the idea that all we really have moment to moment is our current state of well-being. And so, you know, good to try to improve that from one moment to the next and all of that. Uh, wound up in the media, basically because I was following my mom down to her TV show you know, when I was young. Uh, and so I got really well educated on, uh, on television production and stuff like that. Wound up uh, doing all kinds of stuff in the media, advertising, um, computers, computer science, you name it. Built, uh, wound up towards the end of all that period, basically building businesses. And uh, I was, I would say, a pretty successful entrepreneur. And uh, I was, I by 36 or so, by 34, by really by 34, 35, uh, more or less, I'd accomplished everything that I that I thought I would want to. Um, so I was way ahead of schedule, and I was really sort of reevaluating things. And it occurred to me that if I kept doing the same thing, I would probably have the same outcome, um, which would be, you know, an enormous amount of money in all likelihood, and all of the things that come along with that, but probably not any greater degree of happiness than I already had. And so I actually walked away from all that, sold it all, um, and uh, decided, because I'd really just tried every program I thought that was out there that, that might continue to increase my well-being, and yet I still had this sense of discontentment. I still had this sense, I wasn't miserable or anything like that. Um, I mean, my life was, you know, pretty great, frankly. Uh, but there was still just, it was still clear that there was just something missing, you know, that God-sized hole that religions talk about, 
or uh, that fundamental discontentment, you know, that psychology talks about that we just have as as animals, frankly, you know, in the same sense that uh, we're no different than other animals. And so I thought, you know, there's got to be more that I can do. There seem to be people that are happier than I am. Maybe what I need to do is just go study those people for a while, figure out what they're doing, model them, and then, you know, nail down this happiness thing and then get back to building companies. So that's what I set out to do. I, um, I basically got out, wound my way out of the various businesses and stuff, went back to school um, and got scholarly training. At that point, I had master's degrees in management and uh, technology, um, which was great, business and, you know, and technology research education. But that's very different than social science and scholarly training and how to research things. And so I went back, picked those up. And then I asked myself, who are the happiest people on earth? you know, that I can study as a part of this whole process. And who, who is it that I'm trying to model? Who is it that I'm trying to become? I narrowed it down to a bunch of different groups. Um, and I wound up settling on one that I thought I'd eliminate pretty early on in the process. Uh, people that reported things like enlightenment, non-duality, persistent mystical experience, the peace that passeth understanding, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, because they really made the most extraordinary claims in terms of their own individual well-being. Um, so I basically started to turn the tools of science, social science and whatnot, in their direction. And uh, I've been doing that ever since. Uh, Jeffrey, if I could ask you, in, in reading uh, your bio, uh, this direction you took uh, resulted in the first reliable cross-cultural and pan tradition classification of systems for these types of experience. And I assume those mean uh, uh, experiences uh, of, of consciousness. And you you um, classified and identified and classified them, I believe. And uh, I'm wondering, when you did that, um, did they come in stages? Were there stages of enlightenment? Or did we go from you know regular human experience, waking state experience, to a state of awakening? And uh, when you defined it, did you define it simply by the subjective experience, or did you also look for physiological changes that may have taken place or be taking place in the person that had those experiences? That's a great question. Um, and that was more or less an accident, <laughs> but a really fortunate accident. Oh. So basically, what um, I really felt as a as a as a technologist and a and a business person, entrepreneur, and all that, I really felt like we were looking for um, some sort of direct brain stimulation type technology or direct direct nervous system stimulation technology. I really felt like, um, you know, the way that we were going to get happier, or the way that we were going to increase well-being, would be some sort of technological intervention. Um, and so, um, as part of my education, I focused on on neuroscience. Uh, cognitive neuroscience specifically, and um, when you do a novel neuroscience sort of experiment or foray, if you will, um, long before the experimental stage, one thing that people don't really realize is the length and the amount of time that is needed to get to a point where you can actually do an experiment. And so, you know, I've seen estimates that are, you know, three, 
five, seven years when you have a very novel experiment that it just takes in the groundwork because it's not like you see on TV. You, know, you don't just throw somebody into an fMRI machine or an EEG machine or something like that and you just scan their whole brain. You look at the before and after and, oh, lo and behold, it all just lights right up for you. I mean, you, you really have to design your experiments really, really carefully. You have to have a hypothesis about what it is that you're looking for in the first place. You're really not going to get anything. Uh, and that takes an enormous amount of time in a situation like this when there's not, where there's not a lot of data that helps to guide you that already exists. So the first part of our project, really the first phase of our project, was designed to get that. And we did it initially by giving people, by building, I think, the world's first large population of people worldwide, that primarily English speakers, um, that, based, that really said, you know, I am in enlightenment or non-duality or persistent mystical experience or whatever. We had hundreds of terms for this catalog. Um, and so we went to those people, we gave, we gave them a bunch of gold standard psychology measures, you know, well-being measures, emotion measures, developmental measures, personality measures, psychopathology measures, you name it, tons of them. I basically would send people measures until they, based, until they told me they never wanted to hear from me. Again, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you were just going to keep getting measures, right? Because we were trying to get our arms around this population. And uh, really nothing came from that. And so the next thing that we did was we went out and started interviewing people from this population. Uh, we could do about one interview a day. An interview took, on average, six to 12 hours. You really had to really, really dig in. And what we were looking for during that time was where we might be able to look in the brain for what these people were representing. And so we were interviewing them along cognitive science lines. And so we're asking them questions about cognition, which are like your thoughts and your thinking, affect, which you can close you know, with like emotions and your feelings, uh, perception, memory, and eventually sense of self also entered the picture pretty early on. Uh, so those five areas uh, were basically what we would go out and ask you about. And if you want to talk about spaciousness or God or whatever else, I'd humor you for the first 30 minutes or so while I was building rapport. But after that, it was down to the cognitive science questions that might tell us where to look in the brain. So um, that's where that work emerged from. It emerged from going to this population probably for the first time ever and asking a bunch of them cognitive science-based questions, asking them about changing their cognition, affect, perception, memory, um, to a lesser degree, sense of self. Uh, and what shook out of that were a series of buckets that were very clear across traditions, across societies. Um, and I think nobody had really ever gotten to that before because everybody would go out and sit down with somebody. They'd be talking about spaciousness or God or emptiness or the void or whatever, and you couldn't really match the language up between subjects. But when you're asking somebody about the nature of their cognition, I mean, it is what it is. Like, you know, it's thoughts and thinking, and you're going to say pretty much what other human beings are going to say that are experiencing the same thing as you are. So the... Uh, Jeffrey, I wanted yeah. to ask you a question. At that point, um, how many subjects did you have and were they in uh, various uh, countries? You mentioned they were English speaking, but were they pretty much all over the place? They were, yeah, they were all over the place. English wasn't always their first language. Mm -hmm. uh, some of those interviews were extraordinarily challenging in terms of understanding mm -hmm. the meaning uh, and all of that of what people were trying to get. Those, those sometimes took multiple days. Um, and then we, of course, had longitudinal people that we followed up with for years. I mean, there are still people from that original study that we still follow up with. How long uh, ago was that? a few hundred people that we did interviews with. It was about uh, 1,200 people that we did measures with. How long ago was that initial study, Jeffrey? Uh, that was from the very beginning. So uh, it would have started around 2006 and gone to about 2009 or 2010. 
I see. Um, I have a question about uh, something in in uh, the material I read about your work. Uh, it says mm -hmm. that um, uh, you the the experiences or the states of being that you um, found and classified had been mm -hmm. identified and adopted for thousands of years by many cultures and belief systems. Sure. This mm -hmm. sounds like um, what uh, has been called uh, the perennial philosophy or perennial perennialism, these, this uh, essential insight that uh, deep mystical experiences, higher states of consciousness cut across all uh, time periods, cultural factors, uh, belief systems and all that. In doing your research, ha were you guided by um, things you had read along those lines? Um, had you come across those uh, perennial insights prior to doing your research? Did that help you with the classification? No, I didn't really do anything for our classifications. Um, initially, we used stasis criteria um, mm -hmm. from the late 60s uh, because there's a good measure in the academy that's uh, viewed favorably called uh, the mysticism scale from Ralph Hood. And Ralph was uh, one of the... Uh, people on my PhD committee. Um, and so um, we used um, some of Stace's qualifying. Basically, Stace had sort of these, these few things that you look for, like a noetic quality and a few things like that. Uh, and he, he, in a way, I feel like we sort of came along after Stace decades later and picked up to some degree where he did, although he had a limited, he had a more limited population than we did, obviously. And for that matter, the same with Maslow. We sort of uh, mm -hmm. were following along um, in Maslow, but only in Maslow's later work, you know, the work mm -hmm. that he did when he was dying for all intents and purposes and couldn't really get it out um, like his earlier work. Um, the So let me finish asking that first question, answering that first question, which mm -hmm. is that um, we, we did identify different classes, different sort of classifications of the experience. Um, I intentionally have avoided the use of things like levels or stages or something like that. And mm -hmm. so um, we say that they form like a continuum of related experiences uh, and that and I refer to them as locations along that continuum. So location one, location two, location three, so on. Um, I think that there's been a little too much made of value judgments around this type of stuff uh, in the past that like, you know, further is better. Um, and I can accept that there were times and places and that there may still be times and places when, when, when that is to some degree true. Uh, but I also certainly met a lot of people who had clearly gone too far to be, um, to be having, and it was negatively impacting their life, you know? Um, I mean, they were, you know, destitute and uh, sick and unable to pay for, you know, their hospitalization and, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so I think in, in from a modern perspective, um, it's, it's, yes, there are different categories of this experience, um, but I don't subscribe to uh, some of the belief systems that we encountered view that sort of it's pedal to the metal and you just it's all about going as far as you can go mm. i think it's it's pretty important in modern society for people to match up their lifestyle with you know with these different classifications of experience mm. 
The other thing that I would say about the perennial uh, philosophy stuff is, um, you know, I'm not into that stuff much, but obviously we've had a lot of people interface with our project that are into various religions, into various philosophies, and I mean the people that write the books on the stuff, you know. Uh, so I've had a lot of fascinating dinners over the years and whatnot. Um, I've learned that I can more or less see uh, Katzian philosophy, um, the colonialists. Um, well, so Katz is sort of a um, so, th so there's you can kind of divide this into a few different camps. Uh, there's Jorge Ferrer's mm -hmm. uh, sort of many shores theory. Um, there's uh, Katz, and, and it's sort of this idea of uh, constructivism, where you're, um, where you know, like my my, and both of them have you know something in common, and that is that my experience of this is not going to be identical to your experience of it, mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. and that's for whatever reason. I mean, culturally, genetically, I mean, who knows, right? Um, and then the perennialists argue a little bit um, slightly different. I think they're usually interpreted to argue slightly differently than that, which is more that like, oh no, there's a common core that you and mm -hmm. I are experiencing that are similar and whatever else. What I've found is that these arguments are all valid. It depends on the level of the psychological data, you know, that you're talking about. Um, and so, you know, I would say there is a common core to the experience. Uh, the common core from my perspective psychologically is that there's a, there's a change that occurs away from standard human nervous system responses um, that are, you know, generating that discontentment like every other animal. Um, that are sort of generating discontentment in every moment, you know, always feeling like something is just not quite right. I always use the example of a bird, you know, let's say you're eating outside and a bird lands near your table and you toss it a little bit of bread and, the, you know, what does the bird do? Does it like, you know, thank, you know, pick the bread up and slowly eat it and savor it, its eyes roll in the back of it? No, it doesn't do any of that, right? It basically pecks at the bread and it takes a little crumb into its mouth and it starts eating it while it looks around frantically for what might be about to kill it, right? And then when it's convinced that it might be safe to take another crumb into its mouth, it takes another pack and repeats the process. All animals basically do this. We're not different than those other animals. We, we've, our systems have relaxed a little bit because we're not worried about dying every minute unless you look at shows like Naked and Afraid or something on television where they you know, throw you literally into the lion's den and people are scared to death that they're going to die uh, sometime overnight. That's not our experience as modern humans, right? So we have more safety than that, but we still have this mechanism deep down. So the, I would say that the absolute common core of this experience is the change in that mechanism from a sense of fundamental discontentment, however you want to think about that showing up at an individual level, to a sense of things being fundamentally okay. Mm -hmm. deep down because right. our brains basically build up experience from the ground up it's just layers you know brains are layers on top of layers on top of layers of kind of essentially of inhibition and stuff um you know if that if that foundational layer is fear and worry and discontent driven versus fundamentally okay driven the experience that builds up in the layers on top of that is a very different experience of the world and so i think from that perspective you can see the perennialist argument being correct right and then from a cat's argument um certainly the experience of fundamental well-being as we call it collectively um for the public we call it persistent non-symbolic experience academically um 
It's absolutely going to be shaped by your culture, your genetics, you know, mm-hmm. a trillion mm-hmm. other things probably, right? Um, probably what I say, you know, ten, what I said 10 minutes ago or something, right? Um, I mean, all of these things are going to sort of factor into your experience of it in the present moment. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, sure, you can see cats, you know, being correct. And then, you know, Ferrer is kind of a uh, another idea that, that that's in a way, a bit of a blending between those two. And so it's not hard to see his as valid. I think they're all valid. I think that they're they're basically arguing about different levels of the stack, not realizing that they're, that all of their points are at some level correct. Mm-hmm. Quite right. Yeah, me, I understand. From this, you can look at this academically, which somewhat we're doing now, but from an experiential point of view, you're taking data from all these folks all over the the world. Uh, are, you feel, are you finding the experiences they're having uh, uh, quite similar? Are there differences? And as, as you said, it's filtered by the your genetics, by your culture, so on and so forth. And, and then is it matching experiences that you have yourself personally? And is it inspiring you to have those experiences? And then I know you, you have like a finder's course and other courses you, you give. So when people read this research and say, I'd like to move toward that awakening, that experience, of greater satisfaction, whatever you want to call it, what do you recommend they do to move in that direction? A couple of questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's why. That's a lot. <laughs> um, so the answer is, I think um, the buckets of data, like location one, location two, location three, location four, they are. If you think of a map, and you think of like you know Germany and and France and Switzerland, sort of all being near each other in Europe. Um, or Illinois, Indiana, let's say Indiana, Ohio, and maybe Kentucky underneath it, you know, uh, they're all sort of in the same region of the U.S. The others are in the same region of Europe. Uh, they touch up against each other. If we were to call those like location one, location two, location three, uh, you know, French people are basically French people, and Swiss people are basically Swiss people, and um, Germans are basically Germans. And, you know, if you live in Switzerland, you might also speak Germany. You might also speak German, uh, for sure. And your bottles are going to have all kinds of different languages on them uh, and whatever else. But for the most part, you know, you're either like German or Swiss or French, right? Um, However, within that, there's all sorts of possible variation. You know, if I meet you uh, and you're from France, it's pretty easy for me to identify that you're from France. Uh, I can probably tell if you're from northern France, southern France, you know, a big city, a rural area, whatever else. It will have, it will have shaped your experience of being French. Uh, but still, it's pretty obvious to me that you're French, right? Same with Swiss, uh, same with German. Uh, so it's it's kind of like that as you think about these locations. Some of them are bigger, broader terrains where people can have more variation uh, and still, you know, be a location two person, for instance, than others. Uh, some of them are, you know, the Rhode Island of locations. <laughs> some of them are the Texas, right, of locations. Um, but, but sort of that's, that's a good way um, to sort of think about that. Um, I actually think, incidentally, just a little side note, um, something you probably wouldn't know to ask me about. Uh, I think that these have largely been what the brain does... So I think that we've uncovered location one, two, three, four as a species um, because of the way that we're interacting 
the way that we're interacting with the brain in order to get to these types of experiences. And more or less, it's very similar sort of all over the world. Um, but I also think that we have new technologies on the horizon. Like we've been experimenting with something called transcranial ultrasound. In fact, we were, if not the first lab, certainly one of the first labs in the world to be able to literally directly target with, with non-invasive, uh, non-harmful brain stimulation anywhere in the brain. Um, and so in around 2009, 2010, uh, we did a lot of collaborations with people that did fMRI. I personally prefer EEG, so that's the science that I know. So we collaborated with people that did fMRI to sort of get the regions down in the brain that we might be interested in exploring. Um, and we've been targeting those with, um, with transcranial ultrasound and, you know, basically uh, seeing what happens. And one of the interesting things that is beginning to emerge from that work is that these locations that you know we've encountered that you know when i when i talk to somebody from different religions or different movements or whatever i mean more or less if i say this is what this one is this is what this one is they can recognize the ones that they believe in in there right if they're christian maybe only location three is the one that they consider valid but they can sure as heck recognize their sort of persistent mystical thing from christianity um in in my description of location three right um and so what we're learning with this direct brain stimulation stuff is that we're able to create new hybrids of this experience. And I think it's because we're, for the first time really in human history, maybe unless you drove a nail through the skull or something, able to you know, directly stimulate some areas in very precise ways and not others, or some pathways and not others, or some nerves and not others. Uh, in a way that the organic brain can't do, that you can't do with some form of meditation or breathing or movement or whatever else. Like you can only do it with a super advanced state-of-the-art technology like this. Um, and so I think a lot of these things that have been considered the traditional paths and the traditional buckets or the, you know, the, our variation of them and our research or whatever else, um, you know, if we talk another, if we talk 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, we, I think, may very well find that a technology like transcranial ultrasound has become more widely available that is allowing people to very precisely manipulate their experience to have a little more of this and a little less of that than was ever believed possible before around this kind um, of stuff. God, I have a ton of questions now. Um, first, <laughs> first, a quick one, if, and then I'll follow up. Um, could you just briefly explain to listeners what you mean by locations and uh, why you use that term? Sure. Locations are just clusters in the data. And so if you said roughly the same thing as, as other people, um, then we'd cluster you together uh, in as, a, when, as a similar... By say say the same thing, do you mean... It could in, also in be neuroscience. I mean, it could be that you not just reported that, but we, you know, something also showed up on an MRI, fMRI, or EEG. Or there are, there are, to answer a very, very early question, there was a mix of physiological and whatnot measurement as well. Okay. But go on. So this is, these are clusters of uh, described and uh, objectively uh, determined states of consciousness or states of being or uh, locations. Yeah. Okay. Um, second, yeah, they are. And that's an intentional neutral language, right? And yeah, so like okay. if I meet, you know, if I meet someone from, you know, TM and they have their 
language, right? Or I right. meet someone from Theravada Buddhism and they have their language, depending upon the sect of Theravada Buddhism, of course. Um, or I meet someone who is from Christianity or Islam and they have their language. Uh, what we generally find is that um, various groups like that have a particular part of the continuum that they consider the the locations that are valid for them they've called them something unique to their own to the unique to their own tradition um, and they might for instance not consider location one valid but consider location two three and four valid or, or something like that or like I mentioned Christians a minute ago Sufis yeah. as well from Islam would consider really sort of location three to be the valid location and they probably wouldn't consider location two or four valid unless it was a Christian group that followed Bernadette Roberts Mm-hmm. who extended the Christian mystical tradition to location four. Um, and so and so that's a good way to think about it. So or they, they might order them in terms of uh, degree of, of uh, attainment or sure. something, that Absolutely. kind of thing that you are not doing. Very interesting. Um, Jeffrey, you use uh, the term non-symbolic. Uh, mm-hmm. And... and I, I found two things in your research. One was you have a center for the study of non-symbolic consciousness, and you refer you refer to persistent non-symbolic experience. So, two questions: one, what do you mean by non-symbolic, and why experience in one uh, and consciousness in the other? Great questions, and they people often want to read more into those labels. Um, than they should. So I'm glad that you asked about that. In fact, I was just answering an email from somebody writing something um, before our um, before this interview. So here's the deal: when we first started contacting participants, we would, you know, usually they were well-known people who had written books or you know whatever else. So we could look up their language and we tried to match the language. So we would ask, we'd say, hey, we want to research you about this or that, or, and we were trying. If they said consciousness, we said consciousness. If they said experience, we said experience. If they said whatever, we said whatever, right? Uh, just to try to make them feel comfortable with us, and that didn't go well. Um, and that was kind of surprising, but lots of times the language that people used publicly, it turns out was language that they, that meant something to them years ago, uh, that they had to sort of keep using because they used it a long time ago. Um, but it wasn't really their understanding of their current state today. And what they would do is they would write back and they would say things like, you know, you clearly, you know, you're using the word this, or you phrasing it this way. You just, you scientists will never understand this. This can't be studied with science. Um, and so it was very frustrating to try to get participants in the earliest days of the study to really work with us. So what we started to do was just test a ton of different words and phrases, trying to find anything that would get these people to call us back and let us, you know, send them measures and eventually do interviews and then scan their brains and whatever else. Right. So, um, so Susie Cook-Greuter, Suzanne Cook-Greuter, one of the world's great developmental psychologists, uh, was into this. She did something around this area for her dissertation at Harvard's Ed School many years ago. And she wrote a sentence in a paper around 2000, which used the phrase non-symbolically mediated consciousness. And I thought, great, let's add that to the list. Uh, and so I shortened it to non-symbolic consciousness. And the very first participant that we said that to, hey, we're researching, you know, experiences of non-symbolic consciousness, they sort of paused and they thought for a minute and they were like, okay, well, when do you want to meet? Or, you mm-hmm. know, send me your stuff, right? And so did the next one 
and so did the next one. <laughs> and so it was clear that we found a phrase that resonated with uh, participants. Over the years, we learned that more people preferred the word experience than consciousness. Mm -hmm. We could change the center, but we changed what we called it. So that phrase only exists to make our research participants happy. Interesting. It doesn't. It should not imply right. anything that it, we learned. There's no research backing to it. It's literally a, a sentence from a Susie Cook Greuter paper from. <laughs> you, well, you know, actually, I'm it's glad really, I asked. It's a similar <laughs> to the expression "non-conceptual prayer," which people, you know, it, it, it's reflecting the same experience. I, I think, uh, Phil, we we have to wrap it up soon. But any, uh, yes, I, I, I do a lot have more questions, but. Go ahead. I know there are a lot, but I do have one question. Uh, this the brain stimulation technology. Um, how do you know it's safe and there are no side effects? And what about the long term possibilities that it might have side effects you're not aware of? That's a great question. Uh, I asked a lot of that same thing. Um, there's a lot of people working on it, obviously. We didn't just, you know, sort of invent it ourselves. Um, I don't have that level of mathematical genius, that's for sure. Um, and so, this, you know, if you think about ultrasound, ultrasound has been used for a very, very long time. We use it on babies developing in the womb, right? I mean, we all seem fine. Um, the uh, It's used in stroke patients, Um at you know longer periods and more intense energy uh, and those people are literally dying from things bleeding in their brain uh, and that's how they determine whether the bleeding is still going or stopped or uh, or whatever else so it's it's used every day in a lot of very very sensitive um, real world applications like this I think that's probably the thing that resonates with most people as an answer you know my scientific answer is there's a just a ton of studies, you know, that have done histological studies and, you know, blah, 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 right? Uh, that's the more, that's the more boring, would have to really dive into the literature, you know, people's eyes glaze over when you talk about it, um, kind of version of, of, of that answer. Uh, it's like anything else, you know, one of the great researchers in this is a guy named Shinseki at Harvard, who I initially met accidentally, because uh, I was actually there to meet um, Dave Vago, who was uh, there at the time doing his fMRI research. And uh, Dave was running a little late or something, and Shun Sik had like the office next to him, if I remember, or maybe a couple doors down or something. Anyway, I wound up meeting Shun Sik, sort of striking up a conversation with him. Turns out he was doing an ultrasound. He was, he was Buddhist and Korean, um, and you know not adverse to talking about these sorts of things that we research. Um, and that was really the first time that I ever heard about or thought about ultrasound. It was I, I'm you know it took him years to be able to put that on human heads. You know he worked his way through rats and you know rabbits and goats and <laughs> you know all of that let me answer a question that you had earlier about um about uh programs one thing that you got to keep in mind about our programs is that they basically are experiments or have emerged from experiments right and so right around uh 2014 way before ultrasound was on the scene we'd experiment with every form of brain stimulation that was non-invasive it was very clear that no technology that existed at the time was going to be able to do anything like this and we wanted to be able to collect before and after data um at to that point it was like you'd come to us you said you were in you know fundamental well-being and then we did our thing on you but we were taking your word for it in terms of who you were before 
and who you and what the transition was really like and what it was really doing for you. All we had was your subjective feedback on that. And as you might imagine, from a science standpoint, that's not good enough, right? Uh, and so I really wanted to know, and our team really wanted to know, uh, who is someone before, what happens to them during, and who are they after, and what does the development process look like after? Uh, and so we needed to invent, uh, you know, I'd been around the world, I'd been, I more or less knew everybody. Um, I'd seen and been exposed to zillions of methods. Um, and I knew that there was nothing that you could invest, you know, one, two, three thousand dollars per research subject in and get a consistent um, get a consistent result from, right? I mean, maybe like one or two out of a hundred people would transition to fundamental well-being, you know, at best. Uh, and so we had to create basically a protocol that had a higher success rate than that in order to be able to do a research project that didn't go bankrupt measuring people before and after a transition. So a lot of our, all of our stuff basically comes from that effort. And what we did was we went back to our research database and one of the things that we'd asked everybody on their intake form was what worked for you. And so, you know, a research associate cataloged all of that, picked the ones that worked the best, and we started monkeying around with them. We changed them a little bit to update them for what we felt the modern brain um, might be, how the modern brain might be able to use them a little bit better. We put them in a certain sequence. We experimented with sequencing. And by the time we were done, we basically had a protocol that transitioned people uh, to fundamental well-being at about a 70% rate with great reliability. In fact, so reliable that I could tell you about the percentage of people that would transition in the first, middle, and last part of the protocol. It was just that clockworky. Um, and so we've I've done a lot of talking about that. There's all kinds of information out there about that. Um, mm -hmm. That experiment ended in 2018. We left it out there as a course. You know, not very many people take it. Maybe. 100 people or 150 people or something a year take it. It's kind of expensive. It's long. costs $3,000. It's high touch. It's really sort of, um, it's an amazing program, but it takes, um, you know, one and a half to three hours a day for four months, and it costs $3,000, and that's just not something that most people can fit into their life, right? So interesting thing happened earlier this year with COVID. Uh, I was in the Midwest. Um, I was actually in Fairfield. Uh, and I was doing some brainstem in Fairfield. I'd shown up to do some stuff with uh, Fred Travis at Maharishi University there. Uh, and I'd driven this van of like probably half a million, $700,000, I don't know, of neuroscience equipment across the country uh, for that. And then the virus hits, right? <laughs> and you can't do much. Right. And so uh, I'm from Peoria, Illinois. So there was a house waiting for me in a beautiful river spot in Peoria, Illinois. So I just loaded everything up in the van, drove to Peoria. Um, and... I was sitting around like everybody else, sort of thinking, okay, well, geez, what do you do now? Uh, and one of the things that had been the case with our earlier experiments in transitioning people was that um, there was a small subset of that protocol that transitioned 60 of the 70% every time. And so I thought to myself, I, you know, I, for years I'd been thinking, geez, if we ever have some time, what we ought to do is see if we can make a shorter version of this protocol. And so one day I just woke up and decided to do a second experiment around that, um, sent out an email, and hundreds of people signed up for it. And so we spent the COVID period testing a six-week protocol that wound up having a 64%, surprisingly. I thought it would probably have around a 50%, but it wound up having about a 64% transition rate, had a lot of the same benefits on, the, on the, all the psychological measures and stuff that we use for well-being, depression, stress, anxiety, all that, meaning, et cetera. Um, so, so that is, uh, 
I don't see a reason to do more than a couple of experiments on that. So, um, so experimentally, we're done with that, but we're going to keep it out there as a program. Very so good. That's the one that I was telling you before the yeah. show. The next one of those runs on April or on August 1st. Well, we'll have all of that posted up. We're going to have to yeah. wrap it up. Jeffrey, thank yeah. you. And I'd like to ask you if sometime in the near future we could do part two, because there's a lot sure. more I'd like to cover with you. And I'm sure Phil would as well. Yes. And, uh, you know, for our listeners, uh, Jeffrey has about five uh, websites, but um, um, <laughs> so you can look at you can look for Explorer's right. Course and Finder's Course, but probably the uh, central one is Dr. Jeffrey Martin, and it's Jeffrey J E F F E R Y Martin dot com. But it'll be on the website. Thank you very much for your time, Jeffrey. We appreciate it, and uh, good you. luck this with your ongoing work. Um, and for our listeners, before we hang up, Dennis, you have anything to tell our listeners? Yes, uh, we have been <laughs> functioning. I, I should say this for the last four or five years that we've been on. We've got about 230 shows or so posted. And Phil and I have figured we at some point we'd had to monetize this. We want to keep it going. Uh, and we thought of charging this, that. We, we want to keep it free and open, but we are now accepting contributions to support what we're doing. We're not a nonprofit. It's not a tax-deductible donation. But uh, if you can afford to support us on a monthly, yearly, once-in-a-lifetime uh, basis, <laughs> please do so because we want to keep our archives up and we want to keep producing shows. And we've got people from worldwide, all over the world, listening to us, and we want to keep it that way. And, and uh, anybody that can support us, please support us. If you can't afford to, uh, keep listening. We want to keep it free and on the air. So. That's and tell your happens. friends. What's that? And tell your friends. And tell your friends. And on you'll find a contribution button and all that on the website, spiritmatterstalk.com. Thanks again. Thank you, Jeffrey. And we'll see you next time.